You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. The results of the NICE sugar study indicate that targeting very low levels of blood glucose in critically ill patients may not be safe. Joining us to discuss the results of this study is Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle, Dr. Earl Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch, welcome to Reach MD. Pleasure to be here, Steve. Tell us about this study and why does it make a difference in how we treat patients in the hospital? In 2001, there was a large landmark study with 1,500 patients published in the New England Journal by Greet Vandenberg and her colleagues in Belgium. And they showed in surgical ICU patients that intensive control of glucose had tremendous benefits for all of the major outcomes, including mortality in the ICU and in the hospital itself. And what we did um, with ACE and with ADA and actually all of the organizations around the world is we extrapolated those data to mean that we really needed to do a better job in controlling glucose levels tighter for all patients in the hospital. And we, you know, I think admittedly made a few mistakes. For example, is it even possible to do that safely, especially in hospitals that did not have protocols and systems set up to do that. And is this true in all patients? Remembering that this first Vandenberg study was just surgical ICU patients, and it really didn't talk about myocardial infarction patients, pancreatitis patients, cellulitis patients, and so forth. Sure. Not, you can't just lump them all together. No, and that was that was part of the problem. So it was decided to try to do the study to end all studies, and that's what a lot of people have tried to do. And quite frankly, many of us have been waiting for the results of the NICE sugar study for quite some time because it was a multinational study with over 6,100 patients, very heterogeneous in their uh, diagnoses. But importantly, there were no heart attack patients in this study, and there were no vascular surgery bypass patients in this study, which, of course, were the patients seen in the Vandenberg study. So already, this is a very different study. And maybe the most important difference in this study is that it was many centers in different countries, whereas in Vandenberg's first study and in her second study, which was medical ICU patients, it was all at one hospital where you could much better control the protocols, make sure that the nursing staff was was doing things correctly and so forth. Yeah, and that's an important point because how do you have uh, quality control with that many different hospitals and that many different type of doctors with different type of trainings and different type of patients? And that turns out to be a very important point because if you make a protocol and you say, well, the glucose needs to be measured every hour while they're in the ICU and on the ventilator and so forth, how do you know it's going to be measured every hour or every two hours? And in fact, that may have been a problem, not just for the nice sugar study, but actually for many of the studies. So let me tell you what happened. Yes. They did the study. The patients were randomized to either tight control where they were supposed to have normal glucose levels or they were supposed to have, quote unquote, 
standard of care, whereas they didn't want the glucose levels getting too high. And what that meant was blood sugars between 140 and 180 in the standard therapy group. Well, that, indeed, that would, let me, Earl, let me just jump in there and say 140 to 180, to me, that would be fantastic. Uh, care in most of the patients I see in our ICUs. Absolutely correct. I mean, you go through ICUs around the country, and I have, and most people are running in the 200s. And again, this is very important. Mm -hmm. These are people without diabetes. So the results were as follows. They were successful in separating the glucose levels between the groups. One group had um, a level of 115. The other group had an average level of 144. That's a difference of 29 milligrams per deciliter. But the big surprise of this study is the group with the tighter glucose control at 90 days, which was the primary endpoint of the study, 90-day mortality, there was actually a greater mortality in the group who had their glucose levels at the lower level of 115 compared to the standard level, which turned out to be 144. Um, Not surprisingly, the group at 115 had significantly more hypoglycemia. And actually, if you look at some of these studies, it wasn't um, that much more hypoglycemia. In fact, if anything, it may have been a little bit less hypoglycemia than in some of the other major studies. But they define hypoglycemia differently than we would on an outpatient basis. They define severe hypoglycemia as a glucose level less than 40. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it makes sense from the point of view that uh, the patients are usually intubated. They can't sense their hypoglycemia. Um, they're often unconscious for that reason. So that is an arbitrary definition, but there was certainly significantly more in the group uh, receiving the intensive therapy. Tell us a little bit about the sub-analysis that has come out since that study has been published. I and mean, what, what did these patients die of? Well, it's, it's interesting, Steve, because um, we have been waiting for the analysis looking at their diagnosis, mm-hmm. um, both in terms of um, why they were admitted to the hospital. Is there one particular diagnosis of their reason for admitting to the hospital that had an increased risk for mortality? We are also waiting to see what was the actual cause of death Um, and looking for all these types of correlations. And those data have not yet been presented. So we are hoping to hear some of this in um, some of the upcoming meetings, either in the uh, EASD or IDF. But we actually don't know the details of this. Well, what what would you guess? My guess is that uh, the main problem here is hypoglycemia. Mm -hmm. We now know several things. Number one, hypoglycemia will cause arrhythmias. Um, We used to just think that it caused an increase in the QT interval, but now we know that it can do all kinds of other things in terms of ventricular arrhythmias. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, which has been a real interest of mine, is the fact that hypoglycemia in of itself can cause an inflammatory response, very much like we have learned over the years with postprandial hyperglycemia. You get the same inflammatory response, and interestingly, it appears that this inflammation can occur over time. And many of us think that this whole topic of metabolic memory, which 
has been shown in the DCCT edict folks of the inflammatory response that may occur for years later resulting in complications. We now wonder if this is what was happening in this particular group of people because they had hypoglycemia and the inflammation that was caused may have been related to the hypoglycemia. Now that's interesting, Earl. I mean, I I know about the uh, inflammatory response to hyper, but that's fascinating with the hypo as well. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Steve Edelman, and I am speaking with Dr. Earl Hirsch. We are discussing the results of the NICE sugar study. Earl, uh, before that mid-tag, I interrupted you. You were going to say something else. Well, I, I think the big thing about this study, and I think about managing patients in the hospital in general, is that to do this right means to do it safely. And I think one of the things that as a medical community we understand more now than before is that in populations who are predisposed to cardiovascular disease, I think we have a new understanding and a new appreciation and a new respect for hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia is dangerous, and it may be that hypoglycemia in a 25 or 30-year-old type 1 patient um, may not be all that dangerous long-term, but if you take somebody who's 65 years old with known coronary disease, hypoglycemia can be very dangerous. That's point number one. Point number two is the fact that in the hospital, it's very, very difficult to get glucose readings as often as one would like. And what we know what happened in nice sugar, and this happens in every hospital, I think, in the world, is that we are not getting the glucose levels as frequently as we would like. Um, and that really um, makes the patient at much greater risk for devastating hypoglycemia, especially since they're on intravenous insulin at the time. Tell us about what are the current guidelines for hospitalized patients? So shortly after the nice sugar study came out, and in addition, I should say, due to a lot of confusion with many of the other studies that have come out over the past couple of years, ACE and ADA together developed a new set of guidelines, which the bottom line from these guidelines is they have relaxed the targets to a target glycemic goal of a range between 140 and 180. Now, as you said before, Steve, that would still be better than the majority of hospitals um, that we see here in the United States. But we thought that for patients who um, come into a hospital that does not have any type of glycemic protocol already in place, this would be a a safe place to start where um, hospitals could have effective therapy. Now, if you read into the guidelines, what you also will see is that for hospitals who already have protocols in place, there is certainly nothing wrong with bringing that glucose target down to 110. And the reason why 110 was picked as the lower target of acceptable is because there is still a cushion there to protect from hypoglycemia. The reality is the majority of hospitals do not have protocols in place. They do not have an infrastructure in place. And what the guidelines say is you should strive for a target somewhere between 140 and 180 with the ideal target at the lower end of that range. Let's talk about something exciting. The new development of continuous glucose monitors. Tell our listeners what we hope to expect in the near future. There are several companies working on intravascular 
sensors, whether they be intravenous or intra-arterial. And these sensors, often using similar technologies, using glucose oxidase enzymatic technologies, can give real-time glucose readings um, to the physician, to the nurses as it occurs. And what's really amazing about these new technologies is that because it's intravascular, we don't have the lag time that we have with the interstitial fluid subcutaneous technology that we're using on the outpatient side. There are several of these companies that are currently working on the on putting this into the hospital, and if we can eliminate the hypoglycemia with a real-time continuous sensor, we potentially could get the glucose levels extremely well controlled so there's no inflammation and there are no bad outcomes. Well, I would like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle, Dr. Earl Hirsch. Earl, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.